Church, good morning. Ryan Ashley here. So much happening in the life of our church, and there's much communication coming your way. We may be tacking on a video before this or after this. I'm not sure. I just want you to know that for this moment, um, and I'm teaching to you on video, obviously, ahead of time, but from this moment, I just want to concentrate on Psalm 123 uh, with you. Uh, many of you read Psalm 123 also in your house church, but I want to take a moment and read to you um, a, a version of Psalm 123 that I think is also helpful for us, um, just coming off the reading of the house church. Psalm 123, I look to you, heaven-dwelling God, look up to you for help, like servants alert to their master's commands, like a maiden attending her lady. We're watching and waiting, holding our breath, awaiting your word of mercy. Mercy, God, mercy. We've been kicked around long enough, kicked in the teeth by complacent rich men, kicked when we're down by arrogant brutes. Let me pray. God, this morning we come together as is a church who is on a journey, a church who has uh, wrestled with so much already, a church that has been meeting outdoors and meeting in homes, a church that is awaiting your, uh, your plan for us, our next step. And as a church who has experienced uh, so much together, so much life, so much joy, so much celebration, so much friendship, a church who's had to forgive each other and care for each other and bend for each other, God, would you show us the way forward, how it looks to be pilgrims, how we can eradicate over and over again, this idea of being a tourist. Would you show us that in this passage today? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, first thing I want to share, church, is that remember, this is a, a type of uh, scripture that is, is poetry. It is a song. It is not a teaching. It is not a lecture. It is not a series. It's not a letter from Paul to a church. It's not um, a biography account of Jesus. It's not a stern warning from the Old Testament prophets. It's not anything. It's not a historical narrative. It is poetry. It is a song. It is coming from the heart of the writer to, uh, to the people. And what I think is really important for us to understand is that theology is important. Theology is the study of God. It's, the, it's where we get this idea of like uh, thinking rightly about God. So orthodoxy, um, which translates into living rightly under God's rule and reign, which is orthopraxy. And I think it's really important for us to get an, uh, like recheck ourselves when it comes to what we think about when we think about God. Uh, for many, your pilgrim journey really 
has been um, has gone through different iterations of what you think about when you think about God. And really, there are. I mean, you get you talk to a lot of people and and from different backgrounds and different um, ages and ethnicities. We have different perspectives when we think about God, and not all of them are right, and not all of them are wrong. And so what you experience when you think about God or how you've perceived and experienced God is, is, is important because it comes from a place of personal experience. And yet we have to check our personal experience in light of Scripture, in community together. And for, for some of us, our, our view of God has been formed primarily through family relationships or maybe how you were brought up, how you were formed, how you were disciplined as a child. For some of you, your view of God has come from certain teachers, uh, certain Bible teachers, certain pastors, certain podcasts um, who all emphasize uh, certain aspects of God. And then sometimes we have expectations about God that we don't know really where they came from. We just expect certain things about our relationship with God, and we don't know why, we just do. Some of you are actively relearning who God is and how to be with God in this season. And I just want to applaud that. I think that's really important to do. But I think it's very important to do it with Scripture and with others. So often we get frustrated and we want to kind of pull apart the pieces of our faith and look at them and analyze them and wonder if they can actually go back together again. But we do that in isolation. And when you do that in isolation, there's a huge chance there could be a lot of error involved. And so what I want to encourage you, for those of you who often think about God in this particular way that I'm about to share, I want, I want to talk to you today. For some of you, you've had a version of God in your life. You've had a, a belief or a thought that God is more of a far-off, uh, boss-type God who runs a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy could include, um, it, 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 it kind of changes how you approach God. Because you might think of God as running a bureaucracy where, for instance, there are different... Um, what you would call branches of God out there. Meaning you might come to church, you might come to Restoration or to a number of other great churches in our city and approach that as like, I'm walking into a branch of, of my God bank. And uh, you might view me as a, as a branch manager, right? Like um, I'm gonna come to God and I, I'm gonna come to this church and I'm gonna present my requests and my needs to God, and then I'm going to go home and wait for God to fulfill those requests. If that's how you approach God, and I know me saying it out loud might seem like it's I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of it. Uh, I'm not making fun of it. I literally think that we get versions of how we view God from so many different places, and it's easy to adopt a version of God that is some sort of a dispensing God who goes through proper channels. And, and here's the thing, if we actually think about it for like two minutes, that version of God, um, we would actually not like that version of God. I mean, we, we might in a sense tacitly operate with that version of God, but 
when we really talk about that, that doesn't, that sounds like a version of God that is kind of lame. And a dispensing God, I mean, think about that, a dispensing God that goes through proper channels. Man, that sounds like something we would like figure out on our own. We'd like figure out a way to get what we wanted. And if we if we really look at this passage, the, the, the author, the, the writer of this song, it talks about a heaven-dwelling God beyond the hills, okay? This is part of the Psalm of Ascents, and the first one in, in, in Psalm 120, the second one in Psalm 121, this idea of, I look to the hills, where did my help come from? My help comes from the heavens, from the maker of the hills. So the psalmist is kind of picking up this theme that we look beyond the hills, and that, that to this heaven-dwelling God, right? And it seems like we can't completely figure this God out. That this, this psalmist, this song is actually saying that there's a mystery here, that there's this heaven-dwelling God that we can't figure out. And, and I think that's actually a good thing. I, I actually think it would be we would very soon become really contemptuous of a God that we could figure out, that we could learn to use as a tool. And, and if God is actually worth our attention, like at all, then this, this God must be a God that we can look up to, a God that we must look up to. And that's what the song is getting at. That's what the psalmist is getting at, that this heaven-dwelling God um, is a mystery that we cannot penetrate and we cannot define and and we cannot package or repackage this God. And the natural outcome of this kind of posture towards God is one that is a, a, of waiting and watching and alertness to where this movement of God or anticipating this next step of God to happen. And that's what the psalmist is saying. We, we look to you, heaven-dwelling God, like okay, um, a servant waits on their master or a, a, hand, a maiden waits for their lady. I mean, if some of you know that I'm, I'm a big fan of the Downton Abbey series, and some of you are going to make fun of me for that, but it's just a fascinating historical deal. And they walk through like, I mean, it's a story, but it's, it's how, in a sense, uh, British uh, you know, society operated in the early uh, 20th century. And, and I think it's really fascinating, just the hierarchy and all that kind of stuff and how people served. And, and listen, it was, it was not pretty, and, and there was parts that were just kind of rough and ugly. But there was parts that were really beautiful. And the beautiful parts were watching as the servants actually uh, loved and waited on the people that employed them. And this idea of watching and waiting and holding our breath for mercy, this idea of waiting in, in an alert response to what God is doing and where God is moving is what is going on here. And, and real quick, what is mercy? What is that word mercy? Well, mercy, um, you can do a great word study in, in Scripture, and it's, it's a beautiful thing, and I would encourage you to do a word study in Scripture. Grab a a concordance. Um, you can go on BibleGateway.com and type in one word, mercy, you know, and, and, and it'll bring up just a, a Old Testament, New Testament, this beautiful, you can read through it. 
But if you were to kind of sum up what mercy is, mercy is a couple of things. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And mercy is also getting what you don't deserve. It's kind of like this two, two-sided coin is mercy. And it's mentioned three times in this psalm. Which the author, I mean, it just gives you a hint. It's kind of a big deal. That mercy is what the, God, uh, the author is after. And mercy from God is specifically what the psalmist is after. Now, we hold to the basic conviction that God intends good for us. That God is good. That God intends for his his creation to flourish. That's what we read at the, at the creation narrative that, that God created and it was good and, and, and it was very good and he created human beings and they were very good and, and there was this idea of flourishing and beauty and, and that God wanted a partner and we were created in the image of God and we are uh, little image bearers means we are little creators that we create as well and there's this, this goodness in it. But it, it doesn't mean that God is on patrol looking for us to mess up. And some of us have had that version of God in our lives. Some of us have had that that has crept its way into our lives. That we need to, that we are saved. We have this little ticket to heaven. But, but we need to do good things and we need to uh, specifically not do bad things for God to actually show us mercy. For, for God to actually uh, uh, come our way. And remember, mercy is, a, is an interesting word. And, and I would encourage you to do the word study. But mercy is not give us what we want. And mercy is also not reward us for our goodness. Mercy is undeserved, okay, gift, and not getting what we could deserve. So we live under God's mercy. The psalmist is, is, is having this kind of um, this alert like posture, waiting, waiting for God to, to move, waiting for God's compassion, not trying to earn it, but being ready to see it. Mercy is the expectation that God will not stay far away, that God will come down, that God will enter our condition to work our redemption, to fashion a rescue. But you and I, I think, get really easily distracted and really easily fooled. I think we settle. I think we settle for not waiting. I think we settle, we will take what we can get now. And we won't wait for the really good stuff. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright out of his book, Simply Christian. He says, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for, for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ 
all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. That quite simply is what it means to be Christian. To follow Jesus Christ into the world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. So this is pilgrimage language. And if you're tracking, this is week six, and we're talking about pilgrims, not tourists. That following Jesus, okay, and we're using the Psalm of Ascents as, as this kind of language because the language of the Psalms of Ascents was used by people going up to Jerusalem in different eras of the Jewish faith. <clears throat> and God has yearned for his people to be free, not just free of oppressive rulers, but what, is, what tends to rule us from the inside out. So, for instance, uh, the idea, okay, of serving, okay, of this idea of, of serving within this psalm is really beautiful because it's this attentive reacting to the movements and the intentions of our master, Jesus. <coughs> the follower of Jesus is the person who recognizes that our real problem isn't what's happening outside to us and not achieving freedom. It's learning service under a different master. Does that make sense? See, the, the goal behind the work of God in the Old Testament with his people is in the story of Exodus, we see God yearning. He's seeing the the plight of his people under the harsh treatment of the Egyptians. And God wants to rescue them from slavery, which is incredible. It's this incredible story, the 10 plagues, all the, the pillar of fire, everything. But God didn't want to just stop at rescuing his people from slavery. And T. Wright says that God also wanted to rescue his people uh, from the slavery within them. Meaning, he didn't want to just take them out of slavery. He wanted to take slavery out of them. And so the whole conversation from the, from the point of, of leaving Egypt was also, hey, you've got slavery in you. You've got slavery in you. And servitude, what it looks like to wait for orders... Serving a different master than the master of this world is what the gospel is all about. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. This is um, a quote from uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and she says this, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And so here's what we have before us. We have the psalmist 
awaiting, okay, and in eager anticipation for God to move in mercy. And seeing the injustice all around. And yet there was this, this idea, this posture of the psalmist that says, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to do. I'm ready to serve. Whatever you have, send us your mercy. Romans 12, a version of Romans 12 reads like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. You and I, in a sense, just like the psalmist, live as a walking liturgy. We talked last week about worship. We talked last week about this idea that, that worship, obviously, you know this, is much more than singing. It's a posture idea. But, I mean, multiple, ultimately, liturgy is a public expression of a sacred practice, a sacred hymn, saying, um, and, and I think our lives can be walking liturgies. I mean, Jesus had this amazing moment with his disciples where, and we celebrate communion, we take communion, we took communion together last week. And he shares with his, his disciples, he, he actually uh, breaks bread with them, and, and the, whole, the whole introduction to this, this meal of remembrance together, but he washes their feet. He washes their feet. There are churches till, still to this day that practice foot washing. Now, it's a little different because we don't wear sandals and we don't walk everywhere all the time and our feet aren't as gross. Not all of us, some of you. The point is, is just a, it's, a, it's a foreign practice to us. In Jesus' day, the servants would stand at the door and wash the feet of the guests. Jesus took it upon himself to wash the feet of the disciples. He was a rabbi. He was their master. And he says this interesting thing. He says, now that I, the Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He gives them, in a sense, I, I've waited on you hand and foot. Now I want you to wait on others. So part of this song is about service. It's about this alertness and attentiveness to what God is up to and who God is and how God operates. But the second part of the song is, is like this idea of seeing the brokenness all around us, recognizing uh, the pain and the, the, the injustice and the, all the things that are happening around us and actually not being at ease. One version of the scripture talks about um, we're suffering at the hands of someone who is at ease. And isn't that how it goes with power, right? And wealth. Power and wealth give us control and ease, and give us security. Power and wealth help us to kick our feet up. The pandemic has highlighted, if we're honest, all the broken places in our society and in our lives. They were already there before, and in many places they were highlighted. But the pandemic has actually made it excruciatingly obvious how, how jacked up our world is. 
how jacked up politics is, how jacked up power is and money and finances and people making a buck off this and that. How it still is that the person who's in a dollar, you know, raise, doing an hour, hourly raise is having a tough time making a living. And so it's an interesting thing because our great temptation for our spiritual journey, for you and me, as people who follow Jesus in the most at-ease culture in the history of culture, we have a hard time because we <clears throat> seek to and want to remain at ease. It's part of the inertia of our world. It's part of suburban life. It's part of how we roll as Westerners. It's what we know. Most of our days are trying to make things easier. I mean, think how many times this week have you said, I, I, I want to find a way to make this easier. I want to make this carpool easier. I want to make this situation with my family easier. I want to make my life easier. I want to be more at ease. And some of this language is, to be honest with you, crept into the church. I've been at conference after conference, like, how do we make it easier for people to come to church? How do we make it easier for people to connect? How do we make it easier for people to not feel uncomfortable with certain parts of scripture or language or singing or parking their car? We love to make things at ease. But we are not called to be at ease people. The psalmist here actually pushes against this. There are people who are at ease. The people who are at ease are the problem. <coughs> that we uh, like to make things at ease. And when we make things at ease, we're actually downgrading the real adventure of being a pilgrim. That we are, uh, you know, in a sense, end around, we're going around the patterns that will not challenge and disrupt. Disrupt our lives, disrupt the people around us. And if we give into this temptation, we will remain the way we are. Or the way we were. Which is insulated, isolated, and distant from God. And that's not shalom. It's like a false shalom. Sorry, I'm coughing. This is lame. Um, shalom in scripture is not like a ceasefire. It's, it's peace. It means peace, but it doesn't mean just like ceasefire. It doesn't mean like a kind of an angry, you know, ceasefire, but it, it, it actually means something way more profound. It means actual human flourishing the way God meant it to be. That things are right with each other. That people are right with each other. That systems are right with each other. That no one's stepped on. That shalom is like the deep, the deep ache of creation. Seeking to make things at ease is not shalom. Seeking to make things at ease is actually, is actually bypassing the hard work of getting to shalom. And so some of you might ask, why, why don't I feel close to God? 
No, I, I think we need to put our, ourselves in the, in the shoes of the psalmist here. Maybe you've chosen to seek ease at all costs. Ease of relationships. Maybe you've isolated yourself from hard parts of the world that you live in. Or you've isolated yourself from the hard parts in the people's lives that you know. And here's the thing, that's where God is always moving the most. God is always moving the most at the places that are uneasy. And this is where <coughs> a ticket to heaven version of the gospel serves us poorly. Okay? Um, and and it actually serves the witness of Jesus poorly. Because a true mark of love and a true mark of of love it, for others is the willingness to suffer for others. We suffer willingly for the ones we love. We suffer willingly for the ones that we care about. In its truest form, love is giving up the pretension, okay, and comfort in our lives. Love is voluntary, voluntarily entering into the painful experience of others. That's what it is. That's what love does. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love others, love your neighbor, love your enemies. Love your enemies? So here's the difference between a pilgrim and a tourist when it comes to this passage. Um, tourists want their needs met. Tourists want to be at ease. Tourists want to control to have control, to have their needs met, to be in a place of comfort. Tourists are not waiting for God's mercy. Not waiting and begging God to intervene. Tourists have it all planned out. Tourists are very capable. Pilgrims along the journey, every single step, are waiting for God's mercy. Pilgrims along the journey see the dark parts of the city. Run into the people who are being hurt by the people who are at ease. And there's two kinds of people, I think, that build <clears throat> a church. And I'm telling this to you, church. There are people that want to make a church happen and care for the needs of each other and uh, care for the children and make things work and care for each other and, and jump into each other's lives and lo actually love each other. And there's people that just want a product. They just want the lights on, the sermon to go, and everything to meet their needs. And we're in a moment where we're, we're making some radical decisions on who we're going to be as a church. And we can't do it unless we all jump in and serve. And so a couple things that I want to share with you um, in light of this teaching are, one, we need you to help us teach and love our kids in the weeks to come, we are going to meet every other Sunday as a large church. 
we are going to have a full kids program. And we need you to volunteer again. Across the city and across the country, I talk to pastors that are just absolutely frustrated because the pandemic has created a void of volunteers. That doing hard things, the easy excuse now is COVID. I need us to push against this. We need you to push against this and volunteer. Volunteer for two places, children's and our setup and teardown crew. To make these Sundays happen throughout the fall into Christmas season, we've got to set up and tear down in this church. And so we need you to volunteer for that, and we need you to volunteer to love our kids. We're not going to take every Sunday from you, but we want you to give us one, if you can do so. Second thing is the potential of the building is coming. And we want to be the kind of church that is super generous with this, this gift that we feel like God is providing. And there's more on that to come, um, but, but we've already been contacted by Growing Home, who we used to do the family shelter initiative with them, and that is housing homeless families for a week at a time um, throughout the year, so two or three times a year. We've also been contacted by the Severe uh, Weather Shelter Network of churches in Arvada that house homeless individuals overnight when the temperature and the weather gets unbearable. I mean, it's, it's literally... We have the opportunity in our building to actually save people from dying. And we can be a part of that. Church, when we look out, okay, at all that is around us, there is so much that we look at and we go, man, that's not right. That's not right. Like, it's not right that some kids who are in the second grade don't know how to read. And we know from studies that if kids don't learn how to read by second grade, their actual life um, trajectory is muted. And that's why we have a bunch of us are a part of whiz kids and tutoring kids in the neighborhood. Not only because we get to help them in their studies, but we actually get to tell them about Jesus, which is really cool. Uh, there are so many other opportunities. This last week, I was with Kim Frodeen at something called Pax for Hope. And this little nonprofit gets donations from Target and all these different places and individuals for foster families, uh, for kids when they get picked up, when they get put into the system, because something at home is not right, is broken, and there's injustice and there's frustration and there's we're praying for mercy. And these poor children are, are shuffled off to a home they don't know. They're given a pack that's a backpack and pajamas, and a toy. And it's just a, a way for them to know that someone's thinking about them, that they matter. We're doing things um, with Arvada High. And in church, you just need to know that Arvada High has had a rough, rough start to the year. And I can't get into all the details. There's a lot of things that have been involved with the police department, but it's been rough. Church, another way for many of us to get involved, and this is something, this is a heavy one, 
but there's there's a an organization that does vic victim advocacy for people who have seen uh, trauma and tragedy, and it's usually right when it happens. I mean, when I ride with police officers and we we show up at a situation that someone has either been assaulted or there's some trauma that has happened in their life, suicide, that there are actually people who have been trained and who are on call that literally carry um, a pager <laughs> um, that they can respond to that situation. Wouldn't it be great if that were people who love Jesus? Church, here's what I'm telling you. The psalmist is begging God for mercy. And, and I think I'm most convicted of the fact that I potentially could be the kind of person that loves to be at ease more than anything else. In church, you and I have to literally fight to not be at ease. We have to fight it. G.K. Chesterton wrote in Orthodoxy, he said, Can you loathe the world enough to desperately want to change it? And love the world enough to think it worth changing. I know a lot of people that just hate the world. And they hole off in little Christian communes. And they, and they listen to Christian music only. And they hire Christian plumbers. And they, they just do Christian things. But that's not what G.K. Chesterton is saying. He's, he's writing this in... In, in, in Great Britain uh, a, a while back, and he says, can you loathe the world enough to desperately want to change it and love the world enough to think it worth changing? Church, my main aim in my life is not to make this church meet your needs. It's just not. I'm just over that. I'm just so done with that. I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. And to somehow make Jesus appealing to the way you want to live your life. It's not my thing, okay? My main aim in life is to be the kind of church that comes together each week to look, and we look to God in the heavens for mercy so that we can meet the needs of our community together. And by meeting the needs of our community together, by walking this pilgrim journey, people might say, what's this... What's this Jesus character all about? Let me pray. God, this morning, thank you for being with us, even in the midst of my coughing fits. God, grant us the opportunity to share openly, to love each other well, to wrestle with what keeps us at ease. Show us how to be pilgrims, not tourists. to pray for your mercy in every situation and to be, kind of, be the kind of church that really genuinely works for that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.